I'm just going to go ahead and start, even though we're a couple of minutes early. So, Pastor Kendall is not here today. Found out about 9 o'clock last night. I'm sorry, 8.30. Um, and so, uh, I was planning to teach women's Bible study on May 20th, or the Friday, whatever that one is, because Pastor Kendall's graduating with his, his Ph.D. And I said, oh, no, I'll take care of it, no problem. I will rework and add to what I did to Afternoon Circle. Because um, I just started what I wanted to do at Afternoon Circle. I thought, oh, it's a perfect opportunity for those who attended Afternoon Circle can still come to Women's Bible Study, but get something more. Well, last night, when I found that out, I said, I'm not going to stay up all night and rework this, so I will not be offended if anybody who's been to Afternoon Circle gets up and walks out. Well, that's, that's okay. I just, I'm just saying, I w- like I said, uh, I will not be offended if people walk out. Okay. We are gonna, we're going to say a quick prayer. And this is called the uh, Anime Christi prayer, Soul of Christ prayer. Some of, some of us know that by heart. But I'm going to do an old version of it because I like the word inebriate. Inebriate. Like you're inebriated. It means filled up, by the way, okay? I don't know what you guys are thinking about. It's like a sponge filled with liquid. It's a knee-braided sponge. There we go. Next time you should use that with your, yeah. Hey, can you inebriate that sponge for me? <laughs> Stuff crowd today. Is this, is this working? Is this on? Okay. All right, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me, and suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me and bid me to come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I was planning to do something like what we are doing today, but not exactly because I did this already with Afternoon Circle, and I even left that on the top of the front page. Um, So I will still teach in May. I don't know what it will do. I don't know. We'll see. No, but one of the things uh, I still might do today, if we have enough time, is Lutheran reception. The Lutheran reception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, all right, so... We don't have a lot of time. This is big and long, so I'm going to move quickly. So, does everyone have their seatbelts buckled? So we're about to go. Let's go. All right, I have a big, long quote in the beginning from Martin Luther. This is his commentary on the Magnificat, which is from Luke chapter 1. Well, I'm not going to read it. Read it on your own time or during class. It's up to you. But... To kind of sum up what Luther believes about Mary is that Mary's the Christian par excellence, um, and she is the, the, the human who's fully alive. So what does that mean? Well, we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit, but um, I've had, I just had this conversation earlier on Tuesday, um, and so woman is the pinnacle of creation. So woman is the epitome of humanity, Period. Why is that? 
Okay, well, because humanity's relationship towards God is a receptive posture, and um, that's, that's the posture of, of a woman, especially um, as it relates to uh, theology of the body. But we'll, we'll talk, we can talk more about that some other time. All right, anyways, so the, and then in terms of how you understand Mary, you have to have a frame of mind. The frame of mind is the biblical typology. So Mary's story starts in the Old Testament, doesn't start in the New Testament. Just like Jesus's story starts in the Old Testament. It's the, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. This is just our frame of mind, okay? How the gospel writers wrote the gospels is based on the Old Testament narrative. So what we will learn about Mary is that she's foretold in the Old Testament in ways maybe that you hadn't thought about before. All right, and then lastly, everything we say about Mary is always in relationship to her son. There's no teaching about Mary that's about her alone. Okay? So there you go. That's kind of our frame of mind. That's kind of our basic premises as we, as we kind of dive into Mary from the Old Testament perspective. But before we do that, we have to understand, uh, so we're going to have three examples of New Eve, New Ark, and the New Queen Mother. And then we'll have an an addendum at the end if we need to, if we have time, to talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary. But first of all, the New Eve. Before we talk about Mary as the New Eve, we have to understand what the gospel is. And it's not just your ticket out of hell. It's not even primarily that. It's about life right now, and it's the restoration of your humanity or the original righteousness that Adam and Eve lost. They were created with original righteousness. They lost it through sin. Consequence of sin is death, separation from God. But the gospel is the good news that God, through Jesus Christ, restores that original righteousness and gives us um, eternal life. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. All right, so Jesus is the new Adam. That's in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. You're welcome to read those sections there. But for all those out in podcast land, Romans 5, 14, 18 and 19, or 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 45 through 47, we find out that Jesus is the new Adam, meaning that not only is he there to restore the original righteousness of humanity in the Garden of Eden, but we actually find out that even though he comes second, he's primary. So we have to think about that too. So even though Jesus comes after the original Adam, the original Adam was created with this eye towards the new Adam. All right, so if Jesus is the new Adam, then who's the new Eve? Well, before we talk about the new one, we have to talk about the old one. Old Eve, Genesis 1:27 through 28, verse 31 in the beginning. God created the male and female in the image of God. Um, and then, of course, Eve is taken out of the side of Adam. She's bone of bone and flesh of flesh of Adam. Why do I bring that up? Man and woman, they're created immortal, righteous, without sin. They were very good. So on the sixth day, which is the only day where God says it was very good. So they are without sin. This is important. All right. So now when we talk about the fall of humanity, we must remember that they fall together. I know the Apostle Paul says, oh, Eve sinned first. Well, 
Okay, there's a, there's a logical and a chronological statement. Logically speaking, they fell together. How do we know that? Well, when Eve sins by taking the fruit and eats it, direct quote, she gives it to Adam. So Adam is standing next to her when all this happens. So the old Adam was given the job or the, the gift to stand in between the serpent and the woman. And I use the word woman unintentionally because she's actually not named Eve until Genesis chapter 3. So just FYI. So the man is meant to stand in between the serpent and the woman, and what does he do? He doesn't do that. So Adam fails, sins precisely in failing to be who he was meant to be. And then Eve, of course, you know, she sins by taking the fruit and eating, and they fall together. It's important. They fall together. So it's not like it's Eve's fault. It's humanity's fault. All right. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because in Genesis chapter 3, they have the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, which uh, was made popular by David Petraeus, Lutheran theologian. Just a little FYI right there. In case you ever want to read a theology book where you see that, you can be like, cool to be Lutheran. Uh, it's so much so that uh, Pope Benedict XVI, on his encyclical on hope, specifically mentions David Catreus. So, trivia there for everybody. Because I'm sure you're going to use that tonight over at the Wheaton Ale House for trivia night. What is the one Lutheran theologian mentioned by Pope Benedict XVI on his encyclical on hope? David Catreus. Okay. A lot of, useful, a lot of use, useful and useless information in my brain. All right, now the reason why I say that, though, is because God says, um, yeah, okay, so everything's failed. Everything's terrible. You think the world's bad now. It wasn't as bad as then. I mean... Okay, but um, but you know, like I you know, like I preached in Sunday sermon, God rushes into the, the, the garden to make a promise, and this is His life saving promise, His life giving promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the offspring, and um, He will bruise the heel of the offspring. So as Eve had her part in the fall of humanity. This promise shows her offspring will bring its redemption. And we have that nice little picture right there, foreshadowing things. So there's Eve on the left, Mary's on the right. I love that picture, by the way. I think it's beautiful. Of course, where's their attention? On the little baby inside mommy's tummy. So, once again, we can't talk about Mary without talking about Jesus. Okay, the, um, so let's talk about Mary as the new Eve. So we talk about the old Eve. She, she, you know, fell. She was originally righteous. She wasn't. God promises there that one of her offspring will save the day. And so now we get to the Gospel of John. So Mary appears twice in the Gospel of John, the wedding of Cana and at the crucifixion. And at the wedding of Cana, there's a couple things to make note of, and that is it happens on the third day, and she's called woman. 
Now, why is the third day important? Well, the third day, as in the Gospel of John all over the place, should conjure up Old Testament. Specifically, it should conjure up the creation account. So what we find out in the Gospel of John is that the Gospel writer is writing a new Genesis. And we kind of know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That sounds like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? But little do we realize that there are seven days in the Gospel of John. There's seven days that start the Gospel of John, and I have a little chart there that kind of documents that. You've got day one, day two, day three, day four, day five through seven. Now, someone will ask, you know, is the water created on the same? No, it's, 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 you're thinking too literal. John is talking about new creation. He's creating a new creation. He's not talking about the old creation. So all we need to know is that in John, we're talking about something new that doesn't annihilate the past, but actually uses the past to tell the story. So Jesus is revealed as the new Adam, whose public ministry begins the new creation. And the wedding at Cana is like the end of the the new creation in that first week. So Mary is, at the wedding at Cana, Mary is revealed as the woman whose offspring will crush the serpent's head. How do we know that? Because she's called woman at the wedding at Cana. Now most people say, oh no, son should call his mother woman. Well, no kidding. They didn't, they didn't think that in the Old Testament either. They didn't think that in the New Testament. So, okay, so I mean, this is kind of reveals something about ourselves. We're presuming the worst about Jesus. Rather than saying, oh, that's weird. Why would he do that? Oh, if we answer that question, why? We might find out something beautiful. So, it's not a sign of disrespect, but rather a confession of who Mary is. She is the woman from Genesis 3.15. Because, as I said before, Eve is not named until after the promise. So there's the woman and the promise from Genesis 15. And now who it is? It's Mary's the woman. So just as the first Eve invites Adam to commit the first sin, now Mary invites the new Adam to perform the first of his signs. Now just a little bit tidbit about what happens there. Um, Mary comes to Jesus. They ran out of wine. He's like, what does this have to do with you and me? That's, that's, that's actually the, the text. It's, what's this between you and me? That's another confession of the new creation happening. Because it's a weird response. Mary's talking about the, the couple without wine, and Jesus is like, what does this have to do with, between you and me? Um... Also, whose job is it to bring the wine to the, to the wedding? The bridegroom. So, again, we always just assume that Mary's, oh, trying to be cordial. You know, she's like, you know, she's from England, right? Very polite. No. She's going to Jesus because he is the bridegroom in Genesis chapter 2. Because um, he's the new Adam. And his, spot, his response about what does this have to do between you and me is a confession of, like, he's the new Adam and she is the new Eve. Okay.
Now, there's more to it, though, because in the crucifixion, the cross is the moment when the serpent's head is crushed. And that, we get that explicitly from Jesus' mouth in John chapter 12, when he says, Now is the time. Now is the hour. Wedding at Cana. Mary says, Hey, they got no wine. My hour has not come. But now it's come in John chapter 12. So there's a little foreshadowing at the wedding of Cana. Okay, so what does he make reference to in John chapter 12? Well, he makes reference to the crucifixion. And at the moment of the crucifixion, at the moment when the Satan's or the serpent's head is crushed, what is Mary called? Woman. Okay. So we see in even Genesis and Mary and John, I got a little chart there again. Um Comparing, contrasting. Great. You see that? I mean, I think that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. And then you get a little bit of the book of Revelation. We're, it, this, I'm going to skip over that part, mainly because it kind of just says the same thing. We're going to get to the so what part. So what? Who cares? Well, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's important because, again, it adds another layer to the continuation of the Old and the New Testament. But it also shows how the new Adam stands precisely in between the serpent and the woman, between the Satan and humanity. So Mary becomes this epitome of humanity. Like, this, she's, she's us in that moment that needs to be saved by our Lord Jesus from the serpent. And he fulfills what the old Adam could not do. So he's faithful. Now, the other aspect, though, is that with Jesus' death, we actually see a full restoration of humanity. What do I mean by that? Because he's dead meaning that he embodies and actually does or lives the way the old Adam was meant to live. How was the old Adam meant to live? He was meant to love his spouse to the end, even, of course, if it means death. So, he is the restoration of humanity. He is the one who does what humanity is supposed to do, I mean, and when it comes to, the, to male, and of course Mary is the, the full restoration of woman because she is the one who then receives what the, the new Adam gives. And of course, then all of us too. I mean, you know, this isn't just her. It's, it's for everybody. So we get a glimpse of all of our destinies in Mary. All of our destinies are wrapped up in Mary because all of us are destined to be saved by our Lord Jesus and to receive his love, which then, of course, enlivens us by the power of the resurrection. Okay, which means there's hope. Because we, I mean, this doesn't happen very often because we're not, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty good at sinning. And we might lose hope in the restoration of creation. I mean, take a look around. 
Right? The world's going to hell. No, it's not. Jesus is saving the world, even though it doesn't look like it. Um, I won't get on too much of a tangent, but if you read the commentary on the Magnificat by Martin Luther, that is one of, one of Luther's big uh, premises as he talks about Mary, is that God is working in her in this hidden way. It looks like she's just a handmaiden, but yet she's the mother of God. You know, so this is the thing that we look at the world and we think it's all going to hell, but actually God is doing something. It's hidden. And we need to look to God's word to see what, what's going on. Okay, um, food for thought. So you might have Roman Catholic friends and they might say, oh, Mary, the Immaculate Mary. What's that mean? The Immaculate Mary means she was born without sin. Well, sort of. Depends on who you ask. Unfortunately, in 1850, the song of Bernadette, right? Because at Afternoon Circle, I couldn't remember the name of the movie. The song of Bernadette? Anybody see that old movie? She's the one who came up with the... All right, anyways. That's another tangent I won't get into. But there's, a, there's an old movie about... Well, never mind. Okay, let's just forget that part. So Thomas Aquinas. Let's get something that I really know about. Thomas Aquinas from the uh, Middle Ages. He was kind of like the doctor of the old church in the Middle Ages. Um, believed that Mary was not born immaculate, but the moment she was conceived by the power of God's grace became immaculate. Uh, which is very similar to what Luther, Martin Luther believes, by the way. But he's not so precise. He's like, sometimes she becomes uh, purified by God's grace. Through the power of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, everyone believes, I mean, everyone says that. Not based on her own merits. But, um, so, so, and the idea is that, well, since the old Eve was born without sin, the new Eve would be born without sin. I, I don't necessarily think that's great. In fact, I, I like Martin Luther's quote here. There is not a single letter about it in the Gospels or otherwise in the Scriptures about the Immaculate Mary. So, we, we as Lutherans can say, oh, I see what you mean, but we actually don't believe that as dogma. And it wasn't until 1851, I think, that Roman Catholics actually believed it as dogma. And unfortunately, it was, that was a bummer, because there was a lot of very interesting ecumenical dialogue between Christians, and that really kind of screwed things up. So, that's a bummer. But anyway, so what's interesting, though, is Martin Luther, he, he actually sounds a lot more what we would consider Roman Catholic than modern-day Lutherans. So it's kind of interesting. But it, I label food for thought. But anyways, if you have any Roman Catholic friends who say Mary was immaculate, just ask them why was she immaculate, and then you might learn a little something uh, to see if they actually know their Bible. It, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a thought based on logic, not necessarily scripture. Yeah. Aaron. Well, I guess Maybe this is a dumb question, but... Nope. Why does she need to be immaculate? Right. So this is exactly right. So this this question, well, if the old Mary was 
born sinless, the new Mary, because these are, they're in relationship to one another. But that's exactly right. Does it have to be that way? Uh, no, it does not have to be that way. And is it saying, though, that somehow, like, if she were sinful, that that would, like, pass it on to Jesus? Like, I guess... Right. That is usually the critique from non-Catholics. That's right. They'll say, well, what you Catholics believe is that Mary has to be immaculate so that Jesus doesn't get any sin. That's, that's actually not true either. They don't, yeah, they don't say that. But um, they, it, it's really based on the uh, analogy, old Adam, new Adam, old Eve, new Eve. Now, um, but... It's food for thought. Think about it. Plus, also be a little more sensitive to your own Catholic friends and not so judgmental. Because, um, uh, well, some of them are completely... I mean, yeah, like... Uh, I forgot to give my little spiel. Why am I interested in Mary as a pastor, a Lutheran pastor? Well, this goes along with why I became Lutheran. I grew up in a different Christian, Christian denomination who was told a lot of interesting things that were untrue about Lutherans, Catholics, Presbyterians. One of them was, for instance, Lutherans. Well, you know what? They don't take the Bible seriously. They just kind of go through the motions. They're not really passionate about their faith. That's not true. I mean, it's not true for me. I don't think it's true for anybody in this room. So as I began to learn more about Lutheran doctrine... And Martin Luther and other Lutherans, I said, well, it's not quite what I learned. So I thought, well, what else was I taught that maybe isn't quite the whole story? You were taught the catechism, not... I was not taught the catechism. No, I meant oh. what they said about Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Marilyn, yeah. You, you weren't taught the Bible, you were just taught the catechism. Do you know what the catechism is? That's right, I was going to say, there's a bunch of Bible verses in the catechism. But anyways... So there you go. I mean, this is the whole idea is that I've been, I, you know, I was told a lot of things about a lot of different Christian denominations, and, and frankly, they weren't true. So I was like, oh, what else was I told exactly? And this is where, like, for me, my advice for, like, any kind of Christian from another denomination, my first instance is to say, well, make sure you know what you're leaving before you start embarking on what you're coming to. And so especially for me personally, I really embarked on kind of learning what my original or my first church believed so then I could say, you know, yes or no to it. And of course I said no. So anyways, um, yeah, so, so the whole idea though of um, uh, the idea that Immaculate Mary really it has to do with how much grace does to a person. Now, the other thing, too, is we will be sinless. We will be immaculate. We will be purified of our sin. But, I mean, that's not... I mean, everyone's, hopefully everyone's a Christian in here and believes that, because if you don't, you need to talk after class. You will be purified, of course, in heaven. And, and what you know, very, some faithful Christians will say is that that kind of spills over into her life here on earth. So it's not like crazy thinking or outside. It's just that we, because we, we take the Bible seriously as Lutherans, we have to say, well, where is this supported in Holy Scripture? And the, 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 the proof 
is um, debatable. Yeah, Kirby. I never thought about this before you started comparing this, but um, the original Eve's last words basically were like, let's not do what he says. Right. And the new Eve, Mary says, do whatever he says. That's exactly right. Interesting um, The, um, well, yeah, there's, yeah, we could say a lot more about, does anyone know what the last words were from, actually, from Eve? Literally? Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Yeah, look, I got a, I got a man from God. That's, that's a prophetic statement. I got a man from God. I got a man. Anybody know that? Well, it's Cain, yeah, it's Cain, but of course we know that it's prophetic and it's making reference to Jesus. Uh, it's salt and pepper, though, isn't it? I got a man. Anybody know? So, you know the 1990s uh, rap duo. Don't worry, I get the same reaction to like high school kids. Like that's so old. I, I think I think it's salt and pepper. Anybody, what? Well, I know. So in, eh, not and, in, and papa. Okay. All right, now let's talk about the new ark. Oh, Krista. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, okay. So, this is the other thing, too. This is where I'm hoping I wanted to get to with the Lutheran reception of Mary was the main grievance for Luther and Lutherans was the piety around Mary, not the doctrine about Mary. I mean, they had some major questions. But, in fact, um, I do have a quote. uh, If I learn how to page number this. Mary... Uh, Luther says on, on reference to Mary as the queen of heaven, um, he, he, she says, or he says, she is, but too much has been made about this, so we're not going to make this a big deal. So this is a reference to what Krista was saying. I can't remember what page it's on. It's in there somewhere. Um, so the piety around Mary causes problems, and for instance, give you a little foreshadowing, because I think it's kind of fun to see this. In the city of Nuremberg, Krista might even know about that. I don't know. Have you, uh, maybe you've been to Nuremberg. I don't know. Where are you from? I don't know where that is in relation to where you're from. Is Nuremberg close to where you grew up? I come from Castle. Nuremberg is more south. South, yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Um, so, like, cities in Nuremberg, the, the traditions, of like, the piety around the, the Marian festivals, the Annunciation, the Presentation, uh, had, had actually survived in Lutheranism way longer versus these other places in Germany, because in other places in Germany, it was hard to see Jesus when they, when they celebrated the Annunciation. It became about Mary and not about Jesus. So, so like, for instance, Chris is talking about Our Lady of Guadalupe or even Fatma. Um, and you're like, I, I, you know, it's hard to figure out what, 
where Jesus fits in all this. And, um, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that is true. I think that's something where... But I also think the, the flip side is true, that there's such a negative reaction towards Mary that you actually rob yourself of the ultimate saint. When you think about encouragement from people, right? Just, so, that's why I want to bring it up. It's kind of like we should maybe be more, you know, robust. Yes, Nancy. At about the same time as the Immaculate Conception was made, doctor, wasn't that the Assumption of the Virgin Mary also? That's a little bit more. Yeah, right. Actually, I'll have food for thought on that one, too. Yeah. Although the, the term Dormition of Mary stayed within Lutheranism for another 150 years after the Reformation. That's different than the Assumption. Not much, but it is. Let's keep going. All right. New Ark. So Jesus is the new Moses who inaugurated the new Exodus. Forty days in the wilderness, feeding the multitude in the desolate places. Jesus establishes a new covenant like Moses established the, the, uh, the, the blood of the covenant uh, in Exodus chapter 24. We see this especially then in the Gospel of Luke where the word Exodus is actually used in Luke chapter 9, 31 and 30. I mean, 30, 31. So Jesus starts the new exodus that begins in Jerusalem and ends in heaven. He's the new Moses. So if there's a new Moses, there must be a new ark because you can't have an exodus without the ark. Just to let you know. So let's talk about the old ark. Ark is the dwelling place of God on earth. It's a sacred chest. Box. That has a bunch of sand in it. And when you open it up, your face will be melted. I saw it in a movie one time. I can't remember if it was a documentary or not. Um, I think the soundtrack was salt and pepper in that one, too. Okay. It's, yeah, sick, it don't, but it has the Ten Commandments, the manna, and then Aaron's staff. And that, that's important, so that's why I mentioned it. It's made of incorruptible wood, um, which is acacia wood, and uh, that was believed to be holy back in those days. It doesn't rot. Like a lot of things in my house. Um, the ark is covered by pure gold, sign of purity. Also, there was a blue cloth. I think that's kind of fun to think about. I'll get on a little tangent. You know, people, I just talked, had this conversation earlier. They're like, hey, why, you know, why don't we have blue for Advent? I said, well, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I guess I'm, I'm not in love with Mary, maybe like you are. Now, I said this to a person who I knew that would raise their eyebrows. What are you talking about? I said, well, blue is the color of Mary. What? Yeah, well, it is. Okay. We, have, we, we keep the purple. Although I'm very happy to, well, because Mary and Advent go together too, right? Because, I mean, we're talking about the upcoming birth of Jesus. Being proper to exclude the mother from the pregnancy of, yes, okay, that'd be weird anyways. Uh, was there a hand up over here? Yes, Holly. Well, I, I didn't realize there was a blue cloth in there. Yeah. That's right, yes. That's why all those cool pictures of Mary with felt boards always have a blue. What? No, divinity, right? In our blue. Uh, well, okay, so iconography, yes, blue is heavenly, which goes with the, the next thing, the queen of heaven. 
All right, finally, the ark and the tabernacle together are placed where the glory cloud will descend from heaven. That's, on, that's in Exodus 40. So then the ark goes up to Jerusalem. We get this from Psalm 132. Even though the ark goes up to Jerusalem in the psalm, it also switches to God arriving. So that, that's kind of fun. Um, and you might, I'm just maybe belaboring this point a little too much, but wherever the ark goes, God goes. And the most dramatic for me personally is the titanic battle between Dagon and Yahweh in the temple of the Philistines. I've mentioned this, I think. I love that story. For those who might not know that story, the Philistines capture the ark and they bring it to their temple, Dagon. Dagon, I can't remember what kind of god he was. Is he fish? Serpentine? Yeah, it's kind of weird. He's a weirdo. He's a weirdo. Um, very technical terms comes from the Old Testament. So Dagon, so the Ark is brought into the Dagon. The Philistines are like, "Hey, we won! Check it out! The Ark is in our temple." So they all go to bed at night. They wake up in the morning. And Dagon falls over. They're like, "What?" But there's nobody in there. Okay, they're like, "Oh, you know what? Earthquake, whatever." They they put Dagon back up. He falls over, he gets, his, you know, he gets his hands chopped off and his head chopped off, and now they know this is the work of Yahweh. So they freak out, and they put the ark on a, uh, like a cart, and they send the cows out, and it's amazing. Anyways, where the ark is, that's where God is, and God does what he needs to do. All right, but things do fall apart after Solomon, and we find out the glory cloud leaves the temple Ooh, that's scary. That's from Ezekiel chapter 10. So because the glory cloud leaves the temple, which means the presence of God left, now the ark, we don't know where it is. I mean, we do know now because it's in an island in the middle of the ocean. Because uh, we saw the movie of it, right? I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I know we know where it is now, but earlier we didn't know where it was. Um, so there are a couple of theories. Taken by the Babylonians, when the Babylonians took, you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and all those people. Um, but the thing was, it's not listed in all the temple furnishings from 2 Kings chapter 25. Probably would be listed if they actually took it. Or we might think it's in Ethiopia. But if you know anything about that, church in Ethiopia, no one can actually verify if the ark is in there. There's only the one guy that can go in and never leave until he's dead. He just lives in there, right? So, um, eh, maybe. Or, oh, we just you go to Ethiopia. There actually is a church and a guy, and you can't go in except for the one guy. Yeah, he lives in there. Doesn't leave. He doesn't have a family, doesn't raise a family. You know, Henry Louis Gates Jr., He's a, he, he, went to, he went to check that out. He did his whole series on, like, African spirituality. I, that, that's actually true. Uh, he did. I mean, that's not a Raiders of the Lost Ark reference. So. But, but it was, um, yeah, he did all different kinds of African faiths. All right. Or did Jeremiah take it and put it in Mount Nebo? Set, second Maccabees, one of my favorite books to read and meditate upon. I think I, I, I actually I did tell this to this story. I actually did not know this until 
several years ago, we did a little study on the ap- Apocrypha with Pastor Bukes, right? I read it. I was like, what? And then it turns out someone actually thought of that already. So I was like, oh, I didn't know that. So if you look at 2 Maccabees 2, 4 through 8, um, there is a theory that Jeremiah took the ark and put it in Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is um, where Moses looked over and saw the promised land. So, but within second map, now, okay, the Apocrypha, we as Lutherans, it's not part of our Bible. Martin Luther felt it was very important, though, for us to know it because it had a lot of good history in it, which I think is really true. And I do believe some of the Bible stories, like, for instance, the woman at the well and even the Sadducees, when they asked Jesus, if, if you know Tobit, you'll get those Bible passages a little bit better, too. But, I mean, so there's, there's some helpful things in there. Um, okay, so you, yeah, go ahead and read it. The prophecy is that you will know where the ark is when the glory cloud overshadows it. So Jeremiah hides it into Nebo, waiting for the glory cloud to come back. And is Josephus and Tatticus actually confirm that the ark wasn't in the Holy of Holies during the time of Jesus with King Herod's temple? It was empty. Because um, Titus... Not the book of the Bible guy, but General? Was he General Titus? The guy from Rome. Was, was, did he call him General? General Titus, he comes into the city. He, like, murders all these priests. This is a history thing. I mean, he comes in and he destroys the temple, and he's all excited to go into the Holy of Holies to see what all the fuss is about, and it's empty. He's, yeah. Um, okay, so Mary's the new ark, Annunciation, Luke chapter 1. We read this in chapel. Now the, over, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. Same word as overshadows the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And that's important because, I mean, I don't use that word. Ooh, the clouds are, you know, I don't know if it says overshadows me. They didn't say that back then either unless they meant it in a very technical sense. So, in the Annunciation, Mary now becomes the special dwelling place of God's glory. Ark of the Covenant, Virgin Mary. Um, we also see then the story of the visitation played out, similar to what happens with the Ark in Second Samuel. David arose and went to the hill country of Judah. Mary arose and went into the hill country of Judah. Um, David admits his unworthiness, received the ark by exclaiming, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And Elizabeth, of course, says something very similar. So Mary becomes the new ark. Then in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, 19 through 12, again, very similar. Now this woman in the temple, I mean, the woman and the ark are like together, um, which then fulfills Isaiah chapter 66, so, which is kind of in the middle of that page there. No first century Jew who was waiting for the return of the lost ark could read this vision and revelation without being stunned that the true ark was no longer on earth but in heaven. So, you know, still in the early church, people thought that the ark would come back into the temple. Well, that was part of the Christian's interpretation of the Old Testament was like, no, actually, it's, it's out of the temple now. And now it becomes uh, for the whole world rather than just for the, uh, 
nation of Israel. All right, so, um, but in Revelation, just because I know there's some people who will ask, it's, they don't, they're, they're closely described together, although they're not explicitly connected like in Psalm 132, where you're talking about the ark and all of a sudden it's God. In, in Revelation, they're, they're like with each other, but not, you don't get conflated. The whole point, though, is that there's some connection between the ark and Mary. And, and so, so what? Okay, so now the Ark of the Covenant, what do we have? The Ten Commandments, the manna, and Aaron's staff. And Mary, the Word made flesh. Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the Ten Words. Um, Jesus is, what, what is he called? The bread of life, or the bread from heaven, which is manna. And then Jesus is the heavenly high priest. <laughs> that should say John 17. I'm sorry, erase that. Or you could write Hebrews um, chapter 3. Okay, anywho. So, so we see these connections between the old ark and the new ark. So if Mary is the new ark, her body is nothing less than the dwelling place of God on earth, which is very important for us as we think about not just Mary's body, but women's body. Um, that's for another day, too. If Mary is the new ark and the ark is the dwelling place of God on earth, then by implication, Jesus is God on earth. That, that's, we already believe that. That's not a big deal. Um, Mary, but I mean, it's important, though, for us to kind of understand how this fleshes it out. If Mary is the new ark, she shows what the resurrection means and does to our body. So this goes back to the uh, new, e- new Eve aspect. Uh, the resurrection means that Jesus, God is alive in us. So, um, as Mary embodied, or had Jesus in her bodily, we also have God in us bodily. Um, we just say in our hearts. But, I mean, the womb is like right there, so pretty close. All right, food for thought. Now, this goes to the assumption and dormition of Mary. So, if Jesus takes up residence in Mary, her body is completely perfect. And as the old ark was brought into the heavenly Jerusalem, so the new ark was brought into the heavenly Jerusalem. So this idea that Jesus is assumed up into heaven comes from that. It's, again, it's a logical jump. You can't really prove that from Scripture. But that's where the, the doctrine of the assumption of Mary comes from. If, the, if uh, the ark is in heaven and Mary is the new ark, well, her body is assumed into heaven. Now, there are some interesting historical things there's no, there's no, there's no um, grave for Mary and a variety of other interesting tidbits, but that's, yeah, Holly. Um, so what does dormition mean? Dor- yeah, so dormition means like falling asleep, and then um, her body then is, uh, so she actually dies, and her, her body's brought up into heaven. Versus like Elijah and Enoch, they're assumed into heaven, yeah. So it, it's, uh, they both end up with the body of Mary in heaven. Yeah. Yeah, right, it's still, it's still celebrated in Siberia, in fact. Um, they celebrate the Dormition of Mary. Uh, it, it mainly because, okay, so this is another thing too about Luther, is that which we go to, the, like, when we talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, there's nothing in Scripture 
that doesn't like it's a it's a pious opinion. That's was a technical term, where there it doesn't contradict scripture. Like the Dormition of Mary is based on Jesus is taking up residence in her and that presence doing something to her. Which I mean, I hope Jesus does something to us when He enters into our life. Right? I mean, so that's not like rule. Um, it's it's the fact that. Can you prove that by scripture? Well, you can't, but you can prove by scripture that when Jesus takes up residence to you, he does something to the person. I mean, possibly Paul says that in Galatians chapter 2. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, what does that look like? And so the Dormition of Mary, again, stuck around longer because of this belief that the resurrected Jesus inside the person really does something. But this goes back to Chris's point earlier is that there was so much other nonsense surrounded by this piety that it fell away. It became too confusing. Yeah. Is it accurate to say that we celebrate, or not celebrate, but recognize the dormition of other saints when they show up in our yeah, okay, so that's, yeah, okay, so this is a good question. Yes, good question. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so now we want to talk a little bit about the difference between, uh, not the dormition, but the veneration, I would say. So the dormition is kind of more of a technical way of talking about things that's unique to Mary. Yeah, exactly. But we do, so we celebrate St. Days. St. John, we should. I mean, just this, okay, full disclosure. I love St. Days. I love to remember saints. Um, our con- Lutheran confessions believe that the saints intercede for us in heaven. The big thing is not... Lutherans believe that saint intercedes for us. That's, uh, saints in heaven pray for us. That's not an unusual statement. They intercede for us. The big question for Lutherans is whether we can depend upon our prayers. Can we, can we say to... St. Mary, pray for us and know that. Well, n- no, but we do know that they, she's praying for us. I mean, we just know that. But, like, is she praying for us about my math test later this afternoon? I, I, we don't know that, okay? We don't, we don't know that, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. So, but that, that's, that's the part that doesn't, that, as Lutherans, that doesn't really give us any sort of encouragement what encourages us is the fact that the saints in heaven are interceding for us, period. Just like I get encouraged by the saints on earth interceding for us. So we do celebrate these saints because of their faith in our Lord Jesus and the grace he bestows upon them. Like, for instance, Mary. She's a handmaiden. She's, a little, she's, she's just a little person in this big world, but yet God found favor in her and made her the mother of God. I mean, that's an extraordinary story. That, that is like grace beyond grace. So um, all these other goofballs that are in our listed, in our saints, everyone's a goofball. But God loves them and changes them and then inspires us. Um, this is why I get bummed out that people don't go visit, go visit the graves anymore on Sunday afternoon. It's an old tradition, right? You go visit the grave every now and then, right? Yeah. Why do people do that? It's because they're remembering the saints. They're not worshiping the dead person. 
they're venerating, they're, they're uplifting, they're, they're, this, all the, the goof, goofiness of this person now is forgiven by our Lord Jesus, and now that love that Jesus gives to that person now has sanctified that person, and then that affects us. So I, I really enjoy the old go visit the cemetery. And whenever I go back to Bethany, Bethany Lutheran Church in Anawa, Wisconsin, we always go out back, see my See where all my old Nelsons and Thorpe Lunds, they're all buried behind the church. So, yeah, I mean, Uncle Chester, great-grandpa Hans, Eliza, you name them. All, they're all there. And my brother bought a plot there. He did not. He did. Yes, sir. Well, my brother Hans, he's going to be buried in, out in the old plot next to the old family. So I think it's kind of cool. Julie. Oh, it's all right. It's good. Where is the scripture that says the saints intercede for us? Well, they pray for us. So, so the, the, uh, from the Revelation and, and all, the pain, the, all the saints intercede. Yeah. So uh, Revelation chapter 7, chapter 1. I mean, so again, we don't like using the word intercede, right? Okay, fine. Jesus, all the saints pray for us. This would be, okay, so we have to also think about, when you go to heaven, we're fully alive, and we fully do what Christians do. What do Christians do? We pray. Now, this goes along with what you think about prayer. If you think prayer is a big cosmic vending machine where you get stuff out of God, and you're like, I'm in heaven now, I don't need to ask God for anything because I can get it myself, that's the wrong sense of prayer. Like, Heaven is like a big cruise ship. I can just walk down to the cafeteria and get as much soft-serve ice cream as I can. It's going to be awesome. No. Heaven is about being in the presence of God and living in communion with Him. And prayer is precisely what that means. Prayer is communion with God. So, get that here. We get that in heaven. Pastor, uh, the saints pray for us, but do we pray to the saints? Yeah, so... Yeah, okay, so worship is for God alone, just period. All Christians, Roman Catholic, you name it, no one worships a creature. What do we call that when we worship a creature? Idolatry. Okay, so, great. Um, Then the term for praying to. You ask any faithful Roman Catholic, they'll say, we don't pray to the saints like we pray to God. We ask the saints to pray for us. So they'll ask Mary, hey, pray for us. Of course, that's, you know, that's in the rosary. Um, but yeah, you don't, we don't pray to the saints like we're praying to Jesus, to God. So that's why I always like saying interceding. They're praying for us. Um, again, the Lutheran Confessions, Article Chapter 22 and the Augsburg Confession, uh, concedes the fact that the saints pray in heaven for us, but we don't with certainty know how they pray for us. Yeah, Emily. I once compared recently that just to sort of play those. Yeah. Uh, when we ask a friend, would you pray for me? Yep. That's, so it's not... Pray to Mary. Right. Asking her. Yeah, yeah. Would you pray? So then, how how do we? 
I have as much, I see, I, this is where I get a little snarky. I have more faith that Mary prays for me than Carol prays for me. No offense to Carol, but. So. I, I can, I, I mean, oh, I'll pray for you. I'm praying for you. Are you really? I don't know. I don't know. Are you? No, I, listen, see, that's, I mean, present company excluded, of course. But, um, it, like, in my old Christian circles, the word, like, I'm praying for you is kind of like a, a throwaway term of, like, I'm thinking about you, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. So, yeah, so there you go. That's, I mean, that, that's my thing. So, so yeah, so... When we use the word pray to, I, I don't like using that word. It's too confusing for people. Plus, people really don't want it to be true. They don't really like it. I don't know why they don't like it when the saints pray for us. I don't they get all people don't like it. So, um, but, but again, this is, okay, so why is this important to me? The connection between earth and heaven is a lot closer than you think it is. Because it's through Jesus Christ so our connection with Jesus, if we have a close connection with Jesus, we have close connection with those who are alive and dead. Because all of our relationships are through Christ. And that just, that just blows that relationship even, even bigger. So that's why I like it. That's why I'm a big proponent of this, to think about it. Penny. So my probably erroneous understanding of heaven, limited as it is, is that the saints are in God's presence. Why are they even turning around and looking? How disappointing to see what's going on on earth when everything is perfect up there. So Penny, what does God love to do? Love us. So if I'm in the presence of God, I look up to God. I want to be just like God, in fact. Which means his desires will be my desires. And if his desire is, is to love me, one of the ways he loves me is to tend to me, to watch over me. The saints in heaven take on those same desires and think not about themselves or even... There's a full synthesis when you think about God alone. When I think about God alone, I mean primarily, not nothing else. Because when I, when I am with God... I, I want to be like him. I want to, his desires are my desires, and his desires, of course, are for us. So the saints in heaven, then, their desires get ratcheted up for each other, for God, and for us. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Penny, thank you for bringing that up, because, you know, I forgot to mention this, but I heard this when I was a child. Oh, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be thinking about earth, because heaven's so awesome. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I was like, what? You can just leave us here? We need as much help as we can get. Yeah. So, but that was my naive, I mean, it it really has to do with when we come into the presence of God, God's desires become our desires, and if God desires the salvation of mankind, we also desire the salvation of all mankind. And so, what are are our ways of, of, of helping the souls of those here? Is by prayer. Yeah, I mean... I pray for the salvation of, of, of people I know who, who aren't Christians. When I get to heaven, I hope I can do it better. I mean, you know, there's, this, there's a greater, greater desire and a, and a greater um, leaning in to do that.
Aaron. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, good, good but uh, it's like, I, I mean, I, th- I guess I've found, like, especially in really challenging times, it's been enormously comforting and strengthening to know that I have just this slew of people, a lot of you, praying for me and praying for our family. And, um, and just thinking, and it, it's interesting how, like, sometimes, especially when you know somebody's really suffered or somebody who's just has a, a lot of wisdom or a lot of maturity when they t- when you know they're praying for you sometimes that can be like even more comforting and then thinking about like saints in heaven who have like a heavenly perspective mm-hmm. they've been through all of it they, they have like a new perspective on what the whole life here is mm-hmm. you know and they're with jesus in his presence and right. to, think of, to think of those people praying for me is like yeah. Well, that, again, that's Article 22, the Augsburg Confession. Actually, the apology for Article 22 in the Augsburg Confession lays out three reasons, and one of them is just what you said. There's great encouragement. Um, yeah, you know, again, so what you just articulated is really helpful for all of us because the, all these saints are people like us, and they made it. They did it. By the power of God's mercy and through the power of the Holy Spirit, yes. But um, you did not say anything different than Hebrews chapter 11. Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Except for the ones we don't like. Nancy. Oh, I'm sorry. Holly first. Holly first. Thanks, Nancy. Holly first. You know, I'm going to see Holly later. So, you know, I'm not really too much of in a rush. Yes. I was just going to say, all this talk just only solidifies the fact that when we commune at the altar rail, we're meeting with the saints, and they're there for our encouragement, That's right. for like, you know, the great crowd of witnesses, mm-hmm. and so why, why wouldn't it make sense that they're, they're here with us now? Yeah. When we feast together. Yeah, and, and so just one last thing about this, I mean, connected to that. When we pray, we say, through Christ our Lord, or through Jesus Christ, you know, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, that is a confession of what Holly just said. We pray through Jesus, not only because he has access to the Father, but he has all these other people with him. And so when we think of Mary or, or any other saint, and, you know, we're encouraged by their... Um, example in their prayers, it's, it's, because, it's only through Jesus that it is. So that's the only way we have access to them. Nancy. I was almost going to say the same thing. We know we worship with angels in our That's right. You know, and, and I love that, that then, holy, 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 just like it says in the Bible. Right. Like we're being lifted up also. And, and I think some of you, we already talked about this in the old church architecture, right? You would always either have a half circle or like a lot of Scandinavian churches had a half circle for their communion rail because the other half of the circle is in heaven or like a half of a square because then the other half is in heaven. So 
All right. We need to stop. The one thing is, is that uh, the royal queen, it's always a queen mother in the Old Testament. We always think queen is being the husband of the king, but in the Old Testament it's not. You see that with Bathsheba. She reigns with Solomon. She reigns with King David. So, All right, anyways, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.